What's up, everybody? Welcome to the second episode of the Real Estate of Retail podcast. I'm your host, Jason Ciano from Sabre Real Estate. And uh, if you have not checked out the inaugural episode with Josh Weinkrantz from Kimco Realty, I want to urge you to go check that out when you wrap up this episode. On today's episode, we have Andy Siegel and Jose Santana from the Siegel Group. We learn the ins and outs of how they got started in the industry uh, and how they see the industry changing. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Check it out. Welcome to the Real State of Retail podcast. We are your hosts, Jason Ciano and Russell Helbling. We are retail and real estate experts that focus on emerging concepts in the food, fitness, and wellness sector with a flair for social media and digital marketing. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the post-internet impact on the retail and real estate industries. Each episode will feature inspirational guests and thought leaders in their respective fields, giving their input on how they believe retail and real estate will look tomorrow. Now let's get it poppin'. Welcome to the Real Estate of Retail podcast with our guests, Andrew Siegel and Jose Santana from the Siegel Group. So let's dive right in here. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into the commercial real estate business. Um, so I'll, I'll start, I guess, uh, since it's longer than you. Um, <laughs> my father, Mark, was um, one of the pioneer tenant rep brokers in um in Baltimore, where we're from. Um, he was one of the first people to figure out that you could take a tenant outside of your home market. So he, from you know, growing up, you know, he would spend a lot of time in Virginia. Um, we're an hour from Washington. Um, Washington is a much bigger market. And so he would go wherever the tenants would take him. And um, uh, he started in the late 60s. And um, I finished college in the late 80s, went to law school, finished in the early 90s. And um, I had a pretty good understanding, as good an understanding as you can have of what your parent does. Um, but nobody, I think, grows up thinking I'm going to be a real estate broker when I grow up, at least not a re <laughs> retail real estate broker. Um, so when, when, when my father said, why don't you give this a try, I knew I didn't want to practice law. Um, I said, okay, that was in the fall of 92, and that's, this is all I've ever done ever since. And uh, do you regret that decision no, ever? Not for a minute. Not for not a for minute. minute. Um, it's been a great career and uh, um, an always changing um, business. So you, um, you started in the business, obviously, uh, more or less as a result of your family being in the business. Yes. Um, which is pretty common in our industry, a lot of... I think it's more common outside the brokerage part. I, I right. know lots of, you know, father and daughter, father and sons in the, on the development side. Um, on the brokerage side, nobody really cares who your parents are. Sure. Uh, you know, if you don't get up in the morning and make it happen every day, Very you know, nobody's, no one ever said, oh, you're the son of the great Mark Siegel. Here, you know, right. what can I do for you? you right. know, it's, and, and it's even more than that. You, you, uh, I kind of wore it as a chip on my shoulder for many years. Um, trying to get my own clients, making my own name, just so people wouldn't think, oh, he's there because, because of who his dad is. Sure. Um, so there are other people like that, but it's an ex I mean, I don't know too many. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I, I would agree on the brokerage side. I was just 
make more generally speaking, there's there's multi generational families in our industry. Absolutely. Um, but you're right. I can't think of many. Um, who are crazy enough to follow who, their parent. Yeah, in, or, or, or right, I was going to say, or just crazy enough to do brokerage. So uh, so kudos to you for that. Um, give us a little, I didn't give you a chance to kind of talk about the company, right? Talk about the Siegel Group. So sure. Give us was a little, it the Siegel Group when your father did it? Was, it, it wasn't. He, um, he was a partner with a gentleman named Jerry Trout. And uh, they were, he was about 10 years older than he was. They were together from the late 60s to late, 2000s long long time um he and my dad kind of made a transition into development um over the course of time and my brokerage business was continuing to 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 grow and there were a lot of things that i wanted to do in brokerage that i really couldn't do without my own platform and um for instance um i wanted to do um a, I understood that we needed a better brand than we had. I think um, a lot of things with my father's firm evolved just by default without a lot of intention. Uh, you know, we had a logo, but it was done by one of the neighbors who was a commercial artist. And, you know, th- there wasn't really a web presence. There wasn't really a web when they started. So sure. um, I, a lot of pe- I didn't really wasn't even sure I wanted to call it Siegel Group. I, you know, my, my partner... Um, my first partner, Eric Jacob, who's still a partner, Jose joined us um, a few years into it, um, was like, you got to call it Siegel because that's the name people know. Right. And so um, we designed the logo, for example. It's very subtle, but if you look at the way the logo is uh, designed, the A-L-L, the last three letters of my last name is all caps because we wanted to convey that it was something about it was something bigger than me, right. something bigger than Absolutely. our family something that um, people would be proud to say they were a part of. Right, so inclusive, building a community. Exactly. Um, what set you aside from the other companies that were in your market, you know, where, where brokers can kind of pick and choose where they want to go and, and what helped you build that community? Very interesting to me, obviously, as the founder of a, a brokerage company. Um, so everything you're saying is resonating with me. I'm just curious what you thought about when obviously you know you were you were starting out and and how you were able to attract talent to the company sure so um well for one thing late 2008 which is when we started was not a very good time in general certainly not in real estate um because of my exposure to the development side i knew what a site plan and an elevation and a reflected ceiling plan and uh and parking requirements and bulk regulations, and also my legal background. I, I knew about a lot of different things that brokers don't necessarily know about. Sure. Um, brokers tend to think they have a wider knowledge of, of things than they actually do. Um, it's, it's actually very slim. What we do in general is a very small in the spectrum of real estate. Sure. Um, but because of that exposure, I thought one way to differentiate ourselves would be to hire marketing people at a much higher ratio to brokers than I typically saw. So whereas you have maybe one support person for every six or seven brokers, I wanted it to be like three to one. Sure. Two to one, three to one. Yeah. And I wanted those people to be able to do something much different than they did when I started in the 90s. I wanted them to be basically artists, you know, people that could do sophisticated marketing, that, were, you know, that could do 
that knew the Adobe Suite, that grew up with it, right. not not learned it later in right. life, you know. Um, so that we could show people renderings of what their store might look like, what views of what their building might look like, even if it wasn't there. I didn't know any brokers that could do that. I knew brokers that could call an architect or an engineer, have their beg their client, the landlord, right. to have a drawing done, have it take a long time, have it be wrong, have it go back, get redone, pay for it, you know, to, you know. Sure. I saw that we could do, we could crank things like that out quickly um, and add value that way. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very interesting because, as you know, it takes vision to, to make deals a lot of times, right? It's a lot about the story that you might have in your mind because clearly the better brokers, first off, I cannot stand the word broker. It, it almost has a negative connotation. Right yeah, yeah, but um, you know, we, we like to use the word advisors in a lot of ways uh, more than broker because just, you know, that there are people that give that word uh, kind of that negative mm -hmm. connotation, right? So um, when you're going above and beyond, which is what you just described, uh, in order to service clients and help them understand why you truly believe and support, you know, the the decision behind uh, suggesting that they go somewhere or um, or help, you know, a, a, a tenant. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a landlord client uh, with creative vision that is attractive to tenants that you're trying to obviously get to the the project and and how to merchandise the project and things of that nature. I think. Um, definitely separates uh, the better brokers from everybody else who are just trying to, you know, match up uh, any any square peg they can put in a round hole. Sort of paper speak. against the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and that that also uh, definitely increased your overhead. For sure. Um, th that's kind of getting back <laughs> to you know 2008, the time it was. Mm -hmm. We were able to hire people we never probably would have been able to afford in a better time. Yeah. Um, and um, so that that got the you know of course when you raise a client's expectation they they expect you know a certain level of service and hopefully you spoil them to the extent that they don't ever feel like they need to go anywhere else. Yeah. And the other you know the other part I since '92 you know we we've talked about it client of mine that I referred you. Yes. I've known him since 1992 and I'm on probably the sixth company with him. Amazing. So some you know the things that I saw happening were um, which are unique to retail are that you you basically people come and go from the landlords from the tenants but the but the but our side of the business is kind of forever. Sure. You know, we're the only ones that have the institutional knowledge and the history of what's gone on mm -hmm. that not everybody has. Um, and what's important is to stick with the people and they'll go, the good people will go to the good places. And as long as you, you know, you support them and you're, you help them produce and make them look good, then you can ride, you know, for as long as they want to work and as long as you want to work. Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah. that, it's very, very much a, a relationship business, right? Um, so it's, it's way more important to make the relationship than make the deal, right? I mean, ultimately, if you that's all it, it's about. we work way too hard to uh, to have to, you know, start fresh on every single piece of business. I feel sorry for people that do industrial for that reason. Yeah, because if they do 30 deals a year, it's with 30 different people. And the next year it's with 30 different people. And right. it, they may never see their client ever again. Yeah. Um, 
You guys are awfully quiet. Are you? Are you part of the podcast? We're here. <laughs> this is just you guys are, I'm, enthralling. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, that was the word I was going to use. <laughs> oh, just, just making sure you guys are alive. No, we're here. We're here. Yeah, good, good. So, Jose, why don't you give a, a, a little yeah, so, background so, on yourself and how you got in the so business? So it, it actually goes back. It all goes back to 2008, right? And um, that's actually coincidentally when when Andy and I met. Uh, the shop had just opened up. You know, two where, three months. Where were you previous to that? Um, I was in um, working for an outlet developer, and um, the outlet business was booming um, prior to that. So it was uh, that's how we got into into retail. Um, but I was I was a lawyer looking for an exit strategy, and uh, the recession uh, provided that and uh, provided a, an opportunity to to consider something that otherwise I probably wouldn't have. Um, certainly, you know, going into a commission-based business, you know, from, from being a salaried guy. Um, I know, Crazy. insane people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, it, was a, it was a great moment in time to, to change course. And, and so that's what we did. And we opened up the, the office at that time. And uh, we, none of us have looked back. Um, so it, it's been, you know, I, I knew... Uh, we were doing a lot of leasing work um, in the outlet uh, shop that I mentioned, and um, and I knew I could do w- the work that the leasing guys were doing, if not as good, better than they could do it, um, and be more creative than the type of work that I was doing as a lawyer, which is one of the things that I like about the industry. I think I think the better advisors um, are people that are you know uh, creative and can can read more than just the site plan and 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 you know the characteristics of 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 a deal they they can read the players involved sure. and 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 get them to a level of comfort with the advice that you're you're passing on or or the the opinions that you're giving about um whatever it is that you're looking um you know ultimately you're you're helping people whose job is on the line if they're making a, a good or bad decision. Um, and, you know, the, the, the longevity that Andy talks about with, with clients is a result of doing that part of the deal well. Sure. Um, and so I knew, I, I, you know, I, I knew I could do it and I just needed an opportunity and somebody that, that uh, would provide a platform and, that's where, where we ended up. Excellent. And Andy, quick question for you. What advice would you give your younger self when you were just getting started in the business? Well, I got a lot of advice from my dad and from his partner. Sure. Um, they were like the professors. Um, you know, I listened to the last podcast and I heard Josh say, you know, I would have told myself, be patient because it takes a long time. And you know, I think, I don't know better advice because, you know, you get into brokerage and it's three years before you even know what's going on. Yeah. And you know where you fall in the food chain and what you like to do and how you, you know, you can fit in. Um, I remember the first time that I gave somebody advice and they repeated it back to me late, like the next day. Sure. And it was the first time I realized that people were hearing what I said and like took it to heart. And that was a big deal for a young broker because everything in our business really comes down to confidence. When you advise people, you know, first of all, people don't listen to people that don't say things in a confident way. And in our business, they sense the lack of confidence instantly. It's like within 
you know, a split second, right? Absolutely. So to be confident, you need to, obviously you need to know what you're talking about, but you need to understand how to convey information in a way that people can understand it, that they can in turn pass it on to the people they report to. Um, and, but you're not really at that point when you start and it's, and it's years, you know, when you, um, I think before, th- before even you three years is generous to be that much of a trusted advisor. I think at three years you can navigate around the world and understand how to put a deal together. But I think it took, a long, it took a, me longer to feel the real confidence to be able to know that my opinions that I was giving to the clients were the right ones. To speak with any ones. level of authority. Yeah, right. or, to right, some yeah. extent, that's... To get enough it, deals under your belt. What to, it, it, sometimes it's a function of how much people are mentoring you. Sure. I mean, if, they're, if you're left to your own devices and you don't really have any direction and nobody's telling you what to spend your time on, it'll take longer. You'll be, you'll, you know, you'll be wandering around for a while. And, and this is also a business of knowing how to spend your time. I liken it to a, a portfolio. You, know, you, you have to invest a certain amount of time in things you, that have a higher likelihood of happening and a certain amount of time in lesser likelihood things, but there's a bigger payoff. Absolutely. And the payoffs are re- usually relative to the chances, right? right? Yep. And if you spend too much time on the things that are home runs, you're going to be very disappointed. And sure. um, on, in a commission-based business, you have to have you know, a mix. And you need somebody to tell you that you need yeah, to that do was, that. That was like the best advice I ever got early in the business. It was from Gary Trock, actually. So he's a broker at CB, longtime city broker, and he's uh, my good buddy from college, his uncle. So when we first was first in the business, I, he's like, one thing I'll tell you. He goes, everyone wants to talk about these big glamorous deals that we're doing in Times Square, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, I focus on the, the singles. And if you focus on the singles, you're going to be able to pay your rent and feed your family and pay your car. And then you have a couple of doubles and one home run every two, three years, and you'll, you'll make a lot of money. And I've made sure to focus on those singles because the singles happen. Yep. They happen. Yeah, and they, they're smaller, you, but they happen. They also pay the bills, right? right? You know, you need yeah. to you need to hit singles and doubles uh, frequently in order to you know also keep your eye on the on, on the larger you know the larger deals that uh, have a typically a lower likelihood well, of happening. To that effect, and we've talked about this a lot, is that those put money in your pocket. So when you're able, you're able to give advice from a completely non-biased perspective because you're not working on this one deal to be so focused on like, I need this commission to sure. be able to literally pay for my car next month. Right. So if you take that out of the equation, you could give honest and accurate and, and non-biased advice. And I think people, we've always talked about it, they smell that desperation of that need of money from a, yeah. Broker, right? That's 100%. a broker. And yeah. the second you do that, like you've lost credibility. So when I could, when I could, conf- and I do confidently say we should kill this deal. Yeah, we're not and, doing and, and it. It's, a, it's, it's a, stupid. It's and, a crazy concept if right. you think about it, because you're as conflicted as it gets. Right. You know, you're you you, you need the deal right. to to make a living. Yeah, but that's such. Uh, we have a lot of you know younger people and people that we train in the business. Um, and it's, it's such a challenge to, to get them to, you know, to understand that you have to be patient, right? And you have to, that's why when I sit down with somebody who wants to get into the business, I am so brutally, brutally honest with them because I do not want to have this conversation six months down the road where they're like, wait a minute, you told me that I would be making money by now. And it's, you know, no, you have a long way to go. And similar, similar to you guys, you know, we, we, you know, and, and Andy talked a little bit about kind of the back of the house and the marketing. And, you know, we we spent a lot of effort um, in making sure that, you know, the, the folks that are with us are 
that the culture of the company is all you know everybody's kind of on the same page and reading from the same same music sheet to some degree and you know we realized that it didn't make a lot of sense for us or for the culture that we were trying to to create to have you know a bunch of sales people you right. know running around trying to you know cutthroat each other and and who could <laughs> get to the finish line faster and you know without sharing a lot of information and yeah. you know and and you can certainly have a successful shop that way yeah. and there are there are a lot that we can you know all name sure um that's not what we wanted that's not that's not where we wanted to park our hat and you know go to work every day um, and, and, you know, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of energy and, 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 and focus to, to do that because the business is completely, you know, the other, the other way. Yeah. I think, it, you know, that, that's a very interesting perspective. Um, we, when we started in 2011, you know, we, we grew really fast with intention, um, of, hiring really honestly disrupting the marketplace in New York Metro. I mean, that was really, it was, I no longer wanted to be part of a, you know, one of the largest commercial real estate companies in the world. And I, in my previous life, I had a, you know, a, a, a better experience doing retail brokerage for a boutique firm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was l honestly just trying to figure out where I was going to go next. And all of my options were more or less what you just described. And I figured if I didn't really, if there was no place that I really wanted to go, I almost felt responsible Created. for creating it. Yeah. Um, and that was the inspiration behind Sabre. And it's funny because, ex you know, we, we grew fast and furious and managed a whole bunch of salespeople that would, you know, sometimes stab each other in the front, not even the back. Uh, and as you as you get gray hair and mature a little bit, you you know, you realize that it's it's the culture is so important, and you have to really understand who's right for your culture and not where you are, but where you're going. Mm -hmm. And we 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 focus on that every day. Right. Yeah. We um we have an open um. Well, we have a couple, uh, couple things we do. One is um, an open—I um, don't want to call it database, but a file platform. So, anybody who wants to see my files can see them. Anybody wants—and and that started because I was trying to turbocharge younger people and say, "Look, just go to that form and copy that and adapt that." It was just easier for me to tell them where to go than sure. for me to pull it out and you know whatever. Um, but it occurred to me that if I couldn't trust the people, you know, with that openness, they weren't going to be with the firm. Yeah. So why not make it easier for everybody, make it equally accessible? Obviously, if there are things that have to be confidential, that can be put in a place where it, where they don't have permission to go see it. But it just felt much better to have um, to have people that needed to learn have access to the collective um correspondence and history and plans and information that we had. So we developed, um, we need, we knew we needed a commission tracking software. Um, and I think I talked about this at the yes, retreat. Yeah. You did. So when we, um, when we did that, we realized that when you, when you do a transaction, you create a comp. And so wouldn't it be great if we could geocode the comp to be on a map that if you needed the information sometime later, you would see what ev at least everyone in the company has done. People could add the sales to it. 
So it has blank, you know, has a facility for adding that. It's great. And then you could add other information that you got along the way. Right. And as a result, color coded basically. Uh, color coded the... just to the extent of retail versus restaurant. Okay. Right. Um, but but um, if you needed to keep it secret, you could deny permission. So. Somebody could see that it was there, but they'd have to call you and ask you for it sure. instead of just seeing it for themselves. So there's a way to there's a way to protect the information. But the idea was, let's not like collect comps for the sake of a committee for one deal and then just put that in a file drawer and lose it. Forever. Smart, very smart. Um, those are the kinds of things I think the better firms should want to do. Absolutely, um, because otherwise you're reinventing the wheel and you're forcing people to. It's all about duplicate effort, efficiencies, process. You know, we give our people uh, all of the tools and resources and the benefit of the doubt to be really successful. Um, and it's nice when when you know there's that reciprocity and respect for for you know allowing them to have all of those tools and information. And then every now and again, you know, you, you get a a bad egg, so to speak, right? And I think any business owner. You know, goes through that. It's just uh, uh, inevitable. But um, but in order to keep the culture that you you're working really hard to create, it's very important that you have like-minded people that are all you know s- sipping the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Um, so I want to I want to just transition a little bit into um, how has the industry changed over the years that you've been in the business? Yeah, I'd also like to hear just being around it. You know, seeing your dad do it, then you starting in '92 to you know 2018, uh, sure. the lifestyle, the life cycle that you've seen and how it's changed. I can remember um, to get aerial photographs <coughs> of properties, um, going to the aerial photographer's house in Annapolis, um, <laughs> who had an airplane, who had an airplane, yeah. flew it sideways to you know take the picture out <laughs> the window. That is insane. Um, would show me the negatives. I would pick the ones that I wanted. And then three or four days later, it would come between two pieces of cardboard in the yeah. mail. And then I would take um, rub-on graphics to label the streets one letter at a time. The traffic counts, you know, one number at a time um, in, in the conference room, you know, hour after hour. I, um, I started in the business at that time. So, you know, it, it's I'm at an age where I'm I'm really in the middle of the traditional, original Hagstrom map way of, you know, setting up everything to, you know, the heavy use of technology uh, today. And yeah, I mean, it was a manual operation. It's it's unbelievable. unbelievable. I I have some of the older maps. Again, when I started and took over the Starbucks account, a lot of the historic maps were just like color coded, those little Dots. Dots, like yeah. the little sticker dots <laughs> yeah. on like an old hag show. And I was like too. trying yeah. to figure out, what did you mean by this, Jay? <laughs> I probably still have a draw full of dots. Those dots were great. <laughs> oh, they were. And they were like like the acrylic ones that were, and then the sight arrows, right. yeah. to your point, that you had to like pencil over and rub off. Yeah. Um, it's funny boy. to even think about that. It or is. Like yellow was a grocery store ago. and red was a potential site. That's and, right. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, but but that's what's so interesting about the, the niche that we live in, right? I mean, the, the real estate industry as a whole is uh, very large. And I think the retail side of it is a very niche, you know, small kind right. of group 
that's within that uh, that larger segment, obviously. And and you know, we all speak the same language. We you know, we see each other's marketing material. Sure. Being that you know, before the web, you know, people saw each other's tour books because the reps would say, "Well, this is what my Chicago broker did for me." So you would have to do what the Chicago broker did if, if it was better than what you were doing. And that's, that's right. how people figured out. And now you see that on the, on the web. Um, at, you know, certainly the marketing piece has gone from this utilitarian arrow pointing to the site thing <laughs> to here's some images of the neighborhood and here's what it feels like. Right. You know, that's, that's where it's gone. And to some extent, in some cases, a little overboard, I think. Yeah. You know, I, but... But I understand why it's evolved that way because um, there's only so much you can tell from a high aerial of a place. So you know you can try. You know we we invested in a drone. Yeah. Jose is the the license for it. So if I crash it, I just give him the controls. <laughs> and he takes the, the plane. Fault. Um, but the, you know well, you what? Need a license no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We have several drones and several people operating them. So yes. yeah, you can either own or operate, or you can do the sensible thing and hire somebody else. Yes. But, um, you know, what it amounts to is you're trying to convey something to people that may never come to look at the site um, as best you can. Right. Uh, so that you're they can make that a, a decision. Yeah. It's all about supporting that, the uh, the decision logic behind uh, behind uh, a deal, essentially. And, and, um, well, and so... Obviously, marketing has changed, and I know there's a lot of discussion about the retail landscape as a whole. So I'd be curious to hear from both of you guys how you've seen the landscape change since you started in the outlet world, and then from 2008 on, and then you, you know, historically. The well, audience can't well, see well, well, who you is. I'm sorry, Russell. Jose. <laughs> yeah, thank you. The younger one. Well, we have a video <laughs> camera, so. Yeah, but. Well, this is a podcast, sorry. I'm getting used to it, guys. <laughs> Don't fault me. No, no it's, it's interesting because every, every, obviously everything's evolved, um, you know, in the outlet context. Um, you know, I'm not, not sure that, you know, the, that model of, you know, 50 miles down the interstate as a destination, you know, that we started seeing that change, you know, the people relaxing their restrictions and moving closer and closer to the ur- urban cores to a point that outlets today are, you know, the, the, the business model is, is uh, tougher. Um, especially with the research capability that the consumer has to, to, you know, hunt for deals. You know, you don't necessarily need to go somewhere to to feel like you you got a deal because it's it ultimately always was. You know, I feel like I, you know, my my dollar went further. Obviously, square footages have changed. Um, people are looking for the experience, whether it's doing something or feeling something or, you know, uh, being around others doing the same thing. And, you know, and so we've seen uh, some of the retail boxes change, um, you know, from the traditional use to, you know, something like trampoline parks. And we were talking about, you know, axe throwing places and, um you know, a lot of service, you know, I, I think those, those are things, food and service are things that are never going to, you know, escape the, uh, yeah, well, you can't, these are all, uh, you know, segments of our world that can't be replaced by the internet. Correct. Right. Um, you know, people are always going to want to get their hair cut by somebody, you know, even, even if you, what if you own a Floby though, and you could just hook your back, then, then I, then I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I mean, like a robot haircut. It might be cool. You know, there's there's the experience of the barbershop. There's the experience of the salon, you know. Sure. Um, 
So, you know, that's what we see, um, you know, more, more than anything. Um, and I'm sure you guys, you know, that yeah, you can say the same thing in your market. That, I, that we've been talking about also, Jay and I. See, I see what oh, thanks. Saying. Jay and I have been talking about um, <laughs> when is too much in, in the service? When is too much in fast casual food? You know, when is there not going to be enough piece of the pie for everybody to, to be able to well, carve yeah, out a place? Yeah. I was watching the Stoller Report last night, and Gene Spiegelman from Cushman and Wakefield was talking about the he said that 40% of the active tenants, and this was, uh, the episode was uh, definitely, I, I think, it, uh, at least six months old or so, but 40% of the active tenants that they're working with are restaurants. On the last podcast with Josh, we were talking about, and I think Josh was kind of surprised, that we were talking about, you know, one of our very strong, fast, casual clients is pumping the brakes because of the amount of competition, how many seats that there are in the market. And it, it doesn't matter if they're actual directly competitive, serving the same type of food. It's just options, right? right. So so they, they've essentially cannibalized each other by, they, by providing a lot more options for, for the consumer. And, and, and we've and, seen that as well. And when does that happen in fitness, right? And when does that happen yeah. in every other category that's yeah. super active right now because they can take advantage? It's a flight to, to quality, right? It's um, never been a better opportunity for tenants to open up in New York City, right? I mean, half the spaces are vacant and uh, clearly there's a correction going on there. Um, but, you know, what other types of tenants other than the obvious things that we're seeing that are backfilling, you know, spaces of traditional companies that are old and tired and not keeping up with the times. There's a lot of that space coming available. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. what, and there's only so many fitness and service and restaurant concepts that can backfill that space. I'm still looking for the next uses that we don't really know about. The next it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I remember in at least more in Washington, um, the food truck, when the food truck craze hit, right. and all the restaurateurs said, we hate this because, you know, it's just, they're pulling up right in front of our door in a lot of cases, and they can operate for a fraction of the cost that we can, and, you know, it's just not fair. And, and then maybe about five years ago, the food hall thing started, which to me is sort of an in-between the food truck and the full-fledged, you know, restaurant. And, you know, the food hall thing, I think, is here to stay um, because really what it is is a food court mm -hmm. just for the new millennia. I mean, that, sure. that's what people want. They, it's more interesting. It's able to be rotated in and out quicker if it gets stale. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it has a social component because it's, it's wide open seating in common. Sure. And um, whereas the food court kind of got stale where it was once an innovative kind of a thing that lets you get it more of a convenience thing. I think people consider the food halls now the anchors in a lot of places because they actually drive track, have a nice experience at yeah. them. It's not just about being there for 15 minutes and, you know, throwing away the trash and getting on with the shopping. So um, there was one that I went to over the weekend called The Block in Annandale, Virginia, Asian-themed uh, food hall next to a Kmart and on a rainy Sunday, it's packed with all kinds of different people. Um, I think it was maybe five vendors in a bar. That's, you know, replicable. Yeah. If, if, you, uh, if you have the right 
sort of venue for so it. You, so five vendors, how, was it now, how big was it? Probably about 8,000 feet. It, it was hard to tell exactly because there's a big, big right. ha- back of house that you don't see. But um, in that particular case, and I know there's a number of different models for these, I think the the actual operator owned all but three of them or something like He owned more than half plus the bar and oh. then subcontracted or sublet. Got it. Two of the things that he didn't know how to do. Right. Um, but he was doing, so he started the ones that he owned from scratch. They weren't like a licensing deal with something. Correct. Or other. He started them Got from it. scratch. So that takes I know, a different level of, uh, of talent and commitment. For sure. Clearly. Um, and, you know, maybe his plan is, is either to do more of those type of things or it's to take the more successful ones and make a restaurant out of them. I know right. a lot of people think Smart. of these as an incubator for... For, you know, for something also bigger. different menus. I mean, it's a two, three item, really well done that, you know, people identify it, right. you know, with, and that's why it works. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I, I, I do think that the food hall thing is great when done well in the mm-hmm. right areas. Yep. I think that converting every food court in a B and C mall is ridiculous. And I think that, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. Um, everybody's just trying to be really cool. It works some places and not others. Yeah, but I think a surprising case study there was at Roosevelt Field where they did, they completely converted their food hall. They spent an ungodly sum of money redoing it. And on one side, it's their traditional food court players, you know, the... Panda Express. And the, yeah, yeah, like the... Sabaro is, is Sabaro still around? No, Patsy's there. But, but on the other side, they that's did retro. More, <laughs> Very retro. You know, like uh, funky New York City hip kind of. So it's got a different theme on the they other all, side. Every one of them is, except for Moaz or Mao's. My a, favorite. Or it's the one we eat at. It's closed. They went. There was a the great falafel place. Yeah, yeah. There was a great taco place that closed. There was Brother Jimmy's open for like three days. They closed a barbecue guy out of the city. It just has been the, the potatopia was a potato driven, which was, the product was good, closed. And now there's some vacancies and actually. Was Trace Carnes in there? Trace Carnes yeah, was the Mexican they, guy. And that food yeah. was great. Out of the yeah. city, they do a great job. Um, and they closed. And now they're doing a Chick fil A and who knows what'll happen. But sometimes, sometimes that's a function of, you know, obviously rent. And, and, sure. and that, that's a really simple comment. But it's a, you know, it. it a landlord can can dictate and tell you this is what people are paying and this is what you're going to pay and it may not be sustainable for for a concept and there are you know we have seen some landlords some of the more creative ones identify a user identify a, a the type of player that can resonate with the folks that are around it whether it's an urban core whether it's in a in a in a more of a traditional mall setting and work almost in partnership with them. Sure. Um, we've seen that also in, in less traditional contexts where there's a, there's a, a bar in, in uh, Baltimore on a third level, you know, this, you know, behind a, an avenue, a, a space that if you walked in there today, you'd say, this is brilliant. Did we go there but, together when we were? No, tor- but, no? but, so. but you'd it's not wa- near your office. Uh, no. You'd walk in there and say, this so. is brilliant. Yeah. And it took, the vision and the creativity and also the help financially, not right. just a TI check, right. but to say, look, you know, let's figure this out, that it makes sense for you so that 
I'm not, you know, having a, a weird conversation with you eight months down the road when you're not hitting the numbers you thought you were going to hit. Right. And, and you know, to your point earlier um, about, you know, some of the rent corrections in, in New York City, you can see that across the board. Um, and, and it's probably time that, that, that it happens in a lot of the major markets, D.C., you know, Northern Virginia, where some of the you can command the rent and some people will sign up for it. And then the concept 12 months down the road says, you know, we need to talk. And, yeah, and that I mean, doesn't help anybody. Right. And, and, you know, and landlords and developers should be partnering with the tenant right. to, you know, try to help ensure some some level of success as opposed to just drive every dollar. Right. So you hit the performa no matter yeah. what. And, and I mean, that if you're talking about changes in real estate, that probably the biggest one on the landlord side is the institutional ownership of real estate. It's much higher percentage than it was certainly when I started. Right. Um, it was a lot of families that own shopping centers and they did things because they probably were merchants originally themselves that sure. had the anchor store. They cared about the mix. They wanted to partner with the retailers because they wanted the right use. To some extent, the better REITs do that, but to a greater extent, probably they don't. They're more interested. They have shareholders to answer to. They have to drive rents. If they can't drive rents, they sell and they buy something that they can. Um, and that's it, it's you know. interesting because I do think today that that even the larger institutional owners are definitely more curious about the unique, you know, the unique regional uh, or local tenants because that's what gives them authenticity, right? So how do you, if we, I mean, every shopping center could literally at this point just be a you know, a, a well-known grocer, TJX, Orange Theory, PetSmart, uh, yeah. Pet you know, I mean, who needs to have 10 of those in a, you know, two mile radius, right? right? I mean, yeah. it becomes, it becomes super generic. And I think that's where the industry, you know, be kind of where it went. And I think a big part of the the change right now, the, the the revolution of, you know, an evolution, I should say, of where retail is today and going is, you know, you can't just have a, 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 a P.F. Chang's and a Brio and a California Pizza Kitchen in every mall exterior entrance restaurant and, and think that everybody's yeah. going to be pumped to go to the mall right. and eat at those. So, you know, I do see Simon already making those thoughtful decisions on how to elevate their restaurant offerings and how to find, you know, the, the stronger, unique, local, regional player that's uh, that that is definitely going to drive traffic and differentiate the the property and give them a better you know economic deal to yeah. go there. Uh, that's definitely happening, and I think it's over, long overdue because every mall you know in in, in New York and, and New Jersey where we spend most of our time obviously is become very similar, right? I mean, and with with Houston's and Hillstone, you know, pulling out of most mall settings, you know, there's almost no place I want to eat at a mall. Right. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, the other thing, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, when, when anybody gets, it seems like, some level of success, uh, retail or restaurant-wise, there's private equity, like, chasing them down to throw money at them. Yeah. And, um, that wasn't that didn't exist in the 90s. Um, they were family-owned. They were entrepreneurs. Um, but now that's that's completely changed what we do. 
I think, yeah. you know, we, the committees that we are preparing information for are, have board members who are on the private equity side. They're not really the retailer necessarily. More often than not. They're, they're watching the money and watching how it's spent and want to make sure the decision logic's good. And, um, and how do you think that's affected the brand itself? I think, um, first of all, if it weren't for private equity, we tenant reps wouldn't have a whole lot to do. It, it you know, is in a lot of cases, private equity doesn't do good things. But as far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't have a job if it weren't for them. Right. So I can't, you know, say that it's a bad thing. Um, I think that um, for a tenant rep, you know, you were asking me what I would advise a young person. It would be learn who has the money and where they're placing it, because that's going to tell you what, uh, you know, perhaps a smarter person who's looking at the potential of this business, where they think it's, you know, where it's going, where it's going to grow, and t attach yourself to the people making those investments because they're going to steer you to the people that are going to be making a lot of deals. And yeah. um, hopefully that continues. Hopefully retail and restaurants continue to be an appealing place for people to invest. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that I don't see that changing. I think that, you know, it's, I think if anything, it's become easier to identify promising concepts and, and support them. You know, the, the degree that they have success may depend on how good the private equity people are in getting the, the founder, the entrepreneur, to set up the systems and have the right people there to support the growth. Because right. a lot of times they don't. Right. Um, but that's it's just a big, that's a big change. I, I don't ever remember so many retailers being owned by, you know, by Bain Capital and by yeah. you know Catterton and you know th those, you know, and and I think that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, I, I you know because the IPOs for a while were the way companies grew on a large scale, not so much anymore. Yeah, we're, I mean, it, it, it's we're also starting to offer a lot more to our our tenant clients as opposed to just designing their rollout strategy and executing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's another big... You're steering them toward where investors? We're, no, well, yes. I mean, in some cases, I've been uh, heavily involved in, in helping uh, my clients, you know, decide what uh, private equity partners write for them and uh, and ultimately involved in the negotiations of those deals. So yes, but I wasn't even referring to that. I'm talking more about um, being a lot more data-driven than a lot of other, you know, quote-unquote brokers, right? I'm throwing up air quotes since nobody's watching. I saw um, them. You saw them? Yeah. <laughs> I actually wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, I think that a lot of people that are designing rollout strategies are just saying, oh, if Chopped is there, it would probably make sense for us to locate nearby them, as opposed to actually understanding who who's there, right? It, it, understanding the, 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 the core customer of the, of the company that you're working with, right? Um, trying to duplicate the wins in their existing portfolio and limit the failures. Uh, and, and approaching it that way as opposed to saying, you know, hey, McDonald's is there. We're Burger King. We should probably go right next to them, right? You know, Which is interesting, though, is that those brands, 
that is their barometer. So, sure. you know, if you ask Wendy's, they're like the first question out of yeah. their mind, which I do Wendy's work. Where are the arches? Where Where is McDonald's? Okay, and what are they doing sales? Okay, we want to be there. Yeah. Well, I think I, I'm clearly not referring to those types of tenants sure, when I say this. Um, I'm talking more about the, the younger... Sure. You know, companies that are emerging Not that thirty thousand stores. Or something? Yeah, I'm talking. You know, zero to a hundred units, sure. and are deciding what market they want to go into next and why. Um, because you know, you have in a lot of cases, you have master brokers for companies that are trying to, you know, retain as much territory as possible, and they're they're doing the they're taking the easy way out, which can really hurt a company down the road, right? And especially when uh, when the company's raising money and they have they have to deploy it, you know, they're just growing that's in exactly. some cases aimlessly. Yeah, so that, yeah. and that's what I and that's what I said earlier. That's what I think the challenge for a lot of the polished casual users that we're seeing is it's it's a fine line to balance, right? So. Private equity is good. I agree. It's it's keeping us in business and helping us do more deals. But when private equity invests in a concept, they want you to spend it and grow and build more stores. So but still. yeah, when you get an infusion of fifty million dollars and you have to go spend it all, and you need to, you only have let's say fifteen stores, right? Which a lot of these guys are getting big money. It's like all right, go open twenty this year. Like how do you do that from an operational perspective and scale that quickly? Especially if you're a restaurant. Right. Especially if you're a restaurant because it's all about the quality yeah. consistently across the brand. Then you open up a bunch of restaurants that aren't operationally successful. It dilutes the brand. The good stores can't prop up the bad stores, and now you're your 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 individual store uh, profitability gets hurt this profitability across the portfolio gets hurt but then you got to go raise more money at not as great terms and you got to invest it back into the stores and it's like a vicious cycle and god forbid close a few units right i mean that's the that everybody's reluctant to close units that are not performing because it's a negative impact on the brand but sometimes it's the best decision clearly and you know, I think I think right. But in private equity, wants returns now. It's not like well, you need to live, give it eighteen months to breathe and grow. It's like we, there's all different types right. of philosophies that these companies have, and I think you know that's really why when we're you know when we're working with a, a client, not just on you know a rollout strategy, when we're, when we're digging deeper than that. It's very important to understand. So, what it, what is what are your goals and what are your what's your exit strategy? You know, where do you want to? What are you growing this for? Do you want to plant flags in major urban markets and open in New York, Chicago, uh, Miami? You know, and, and kind of plant a flag there, open one kind of flagship location, or are you trying to you know grow organically throughout the Northeast? And, you know, hit a lot more penetration per the population, right, per capita, uh, but still being thoughtful about cannibalization, you know, while you're doing that. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of when you, when you meet with the founders of these companies, they don't know the answer to those questions. They're, they're listening to a lot of unqualified people in, in some cases. Um, as to why they should be doing what, and they're typically the successful ones are are just really good at getting the company where that where it is today, and not necessarily making those long term decisions. 
um, on on where the company should grow, why and how. I think you know a broker, a good broker, can make a, a difference setting the right expectation for, for how many can get done, how many are worth doing. Yep. Um, what what real estate costs. Um, and a bad one can do a lot of damage, Absolutely. as you say, because yeah. if they head down the wrong road, it takes you know a lot. It's very distracting for a company to have to run, try and turn around a bad store. It saps them of energy. It takes the better people, or it makes them more, you know, more willing to go elsewhere. Um, you know, I the, the a lot of people that aren't exposed to real estate think a lot of times that it's a logistical exercise that you just. If you want to have five, it's just a matter of six months of effort, and then six months later you'll be open, and then six months later it'll be pro- you know right. it doesn't work that way. You, you know if you you can you can obviously set priorities and targets, but they're not going to happen in the order from one to ten necessarily. Sure. So, you know you, you have to educate people a lot of times. They they have to understand that you know it's going to happen somewhat as it can happen. Right. You're going to be there the minute something can happen, but you don't control the timing. Right. You don't, you want to be you're not producing something. You've got to be as strategic <laughs> yeah. as possible. Right. And we always do you know, advise our clients that that's the way to do it. But you have to, we, I, whenever I'm doing a market entry, it's like, here's where you want to be. But we, if this opportunity comes up, if you really want to grow in this market, you need to take some opportunities and, and run with them. And I think they'll surprise you at how well they'll do. And There's so many outside circumstances that we're not in control of and timing of available strong real estate for sure is one of them. So we've, we've been, uh, we've been chatting here for a while and this has been great so far. Let's change it up. Um, Let's change it up and dive into some unrelated, uh, non-specific industry questions. Um, and, and, I, I'm going to give you guys both the opportunity to answer each one. And uh, in, in the spirit of time, we'll just go with two of them. So I'll start with you, Andy. You have to go on a road trip from New York. We decided it was to Boston, I yeah, think, last four week. four hours. Yeah, we was as opposed to three okay, days. If you're okay with a three-day trip, we could do California also. Yeah. It's up to you. Either way, you have to bring three people. Who are they? So I, I, I thought about this a little bit. Um, one of my favorite stories, movies, real life events is the story of Apollo 13. Sure. Because Houston, we have a problem is like, to me, the greatest line of all time of somebody who is in a dire, horrendous situation might get, end up in outer space freezing (laughs) with no one even knows, no one ever see them again or hear. (laughs) And he says, Houston, we have a problem. And they solve it. They aim the thing back, they shoot the blast and they get it back to earth. And so Jim Lavelle would be the, I mean, I would like to be in a car with him asking him, what exactly went through your mind? Were you like really panicking or were you really thinking you were going to figure a way out of it? That's a great And one. I, you know, so that's, that's one. Um, I've been reading a book. You may have heard of it. Uh, it's actually two books. One, it's called, the first one's called Sapiens. Mm-hmm. The other one's called Homo Deus. They're by an Israeli uh, neuroscientist, although his intellect is wide he covers a lot of ground but it's basically the history of of human beings um one thing that we tend to take for granted is that homo sapiens were the only humans which is not the case there were at least one other race or one other species i should say uh, called neanderthals and he talks about why the sapiens became the preeminent 
species of human being. And his thesis is that it isn't because they were bigger or stronger, because the Neanderthals, they know from archaeological evidence, were bigger and stronger. It's because they were able to act collectively in a much more effective way than their counterparts. And um, in the follow-on book, which I'm about a third of the way through, he talks about the fact that um, throughout history, um, royals, leaders, political heads of state, died of the same illnesses that, um, that the less privileged had. Sure. And that in the future, because of our, our knowledge in artificial intelligence and genetics, people that have the means will actually be able to physically change their bodies and live longer. And when that happens, how will they treat everybody else? And his, the nearest thing he can think of to how that might be is how humans now treat animals and how important it is to treat animals humanely because there will be a time when humans won't be on, e on par with each other. Um, and that's a very interesting thing to me. So I, I, that's another person I would like to talk talk to at length about that, that three days that could get a lot yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's going to california he's yeah. not going to on Boston. that one you're going to california <laughs> and two things i was at the uh, the uh, museum of natural history with my family last week and there there was some interesting perspective on that so i don't know if you've been there recently in but the dc no or new, new york. york yeah no. um that's number one and then number two based on that answer i actually might pick you to be in a car with me if i'm ever asked this question <laughs> because there's clearly a lot of things that i'd like to like to know that i think you could help me with third person i i those are the two that two? i two yeah okay. two works jose yeah um, three people. Um, I don't know. I I need somebody that that can come up with with really good music, really good playlist, really good. You know, just just the soundtrack. You're looking at two I, of them. I think so. I think the soundtrack to anything is critical. Uh, well, you, you, that you're copping out. You gotta you gotta so you pick like no, so somebody. Do you want names like Trent uh, Reznor? He's yeah, a great soundtrack right. guy. No, I, I or I, like you know a DJ. Uh, yeah, I I I, I you want definitely travel DJ Khaled because <laughs> of his <Snapchat>. another one. <laughs> no, I, I definitely have to travel with my uh, my one of my dear friends from college. Nobody's gonna know him, but he's, he's my chief That's of staff. Fine. Okay. Um, uh, two other people. I I don't know. I, I like the. They could be alive. They could no, be dead. They could be celebrity. They could be. Radio my fear is that they would they would try to you know make decisions and you know you'd have to appease. So you you're know. driving. Oh yeah, I'm okay. definitely driving, and they're not telling me you know when to stop and where we're going. I guess that's a reflection of who I am. <laughs> so it's it's tough. It's a that's a tough question. Fair so enough. I'd probably be flying to California. I'd probably be flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so. true. Not a road trip guy. Um, no, that's for the birds. <laughs> Andy, this one's for you. Um, what are you great at? Um, nobody, does anybody want to say what they're great at? Okay. Uh, you could boast yeah. a little Fine. bit. I, and what, what, we, what we mean by that, I just want to understand something that the audience, even if they know you, mm -hmm. probably would not be aware that you're good at, let's maybe say good, so you don't feel like you're boasting. Well, keep it in the realm of professional okay. uh, activity. Um, it's been noted that um, I, after so many years of doing this, I, my instincts for predicting the future are pretty sharp. So if I see a situation 
I pretty much know how it's going to come out, and I'm pretty good at, you know, directing my efforts accordingly. Love that. Um, I don't know if that's really a talent. It's probably oh, a combination it's... of some 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 instinct, but a lot of just doing this for a very very long time. Experience, seeing a lot, a couple yeah. hard knocks here yeah. and there. Yeah. yeah, you learn learn <laughs> along the way, and and you. I think I'm good at listening. Okay. I, I think I'm 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 good at, at trying to figure out how to get to the same level with the person I'm talking to, regardless of who they are, what they are. You know, I, I think that's such a critical characteristic of a good advisor, a good broker. Um, you know, it, it, that's how you create some some commonality and and you know rapport and and. Uh, you know, you, there's a lot of folks, especially today with technology and everything. You talk to them, and and you can see it in their eyes. They, they, you know, they're they're watching your lips move, but they don't care. They they didn't hear anything. So I think that's important, and and that's something that I I try to try to cultivate actively. Emotional intelligence. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, last question. If you were hosting this podcast, what is one question you would want to ask other people in the commercial real estate field, Andy? Um, at what point in their career would they be? Like my stage or a younger person? What? Um, your stage. What are you most proud of? What are you most proud of? Who, whose careers did you help? Who's, what people did you help bring along? You know um, my next question, right? Go ahead. What are you most proud of? Uh, what we've created for the last 10 years. Um, out of, you know, in, in a really bad time, um, something that, a place that I think a lot of people have developed, personally and professionally, um, doing this business the way I think it should be done, um, and able to convey that, to the next group of younger people entering it. Love that. Love that. Jose, you want to want to answer the same question? Um one question that you'd want to ask somebody else yeah, in the I, I, commercial sector? I, I don't know. I mean, I when when does it ever feel like like you you you're done? When does it ever feel like, you know, you you've arrived, you've 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 finished. Where where you know, um, and, and you see, especially on some of the older guys, you know, that, that, and that definitely feel with, from this perspective that they had an easier way necessarily, you know, we spend so much time, you know, talking about the changes, this, that, the other, but if you really think about, you know, the heavy lifting that those guys did, the, the previous generations of, of folks that did this, going back to the maps, going back to, you know, some of the topics we talked about, you know, uh, getting some perspective from them. Uh, I, I, I cherish. I mean, I, I think it's really, really cool because it, it gives you, I, I think, it, it, it grounds you um, in, in what it is that, that you do. So that's what I would ask. I, you know, wh when do you get there? And lastly, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? I, I personally, and you've heard it a couple times now, I'm, I'm most proud of my my. Uh, the way that I was able to um, figure out my passion, which is flying. I started flying when I was in high school. Aerial um, photography? And just just being a pilot, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. Uh, we've, we've done that, actually, <laughs> for a client several years ago. But um, <clears throat> marrying both um, flying and a professional you know, job, 
and not necessarily make a living while flying. Um, so that was probably the, the the proudest accomplishment that I have. Cool. And you know, we able to figure out a way to implement a an airplane into what we do, and you know, the markets that we cover, and um, you know, had a reasonable sounding board with my partners, and it's something that uh, that we've you know, it's a serious business tool that we use, and, and I'm I'm very very proud of that. So when you say you flew here, you literally flew here. Yeah, <laughs> you flew here. You know, and and in that process, you know, take I, I took Andy from you know a zero hour guy that had no interest in flying <laughs> to a guy that now reads newsletters on like you know technicalities of instrument flying you know in his spare time so you know mentoring him through that process um was personally very rewarding because you know to be able to pass something on to somebody is um is something i think everybody should experience um especially if you're really passionate about it whether it's your job or something you you do on the side um so i'm I'm very proud of that it's fascinating My, my dad was a pilot hasn't kept up with it but it's i've always been fascinated by it. it's very interesting yeah. when i grow up i'm going to be an airline captain so <laughs> there you go and uh, what kind of plane is it that you flew here on today we flew in a baron today cool how many seats six six seats twin engine excellent um yeah, a really serious high performance machine flying machine very cool Good stuff, guys. Well, thank you so much. I hope everybody enjoys this episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.